Father, we do need you this morning, just as we sang. Need you every moment. We pray this morning that you would help us see the truth. Help us see the patterns in our lives that we have been even unaware of as we've been living them out and giving us a new pattern through your son and what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection on the cross and that you would change us this morning. We need you. We need your spirit to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to be transformed, to look more and more like you. We expect it. We ask that you would do it this morning. Would you be with us? Go before us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Um, how many of you in the room, I'm curious, were born before 1990? Before 1990. Okay, after 1990, the other half. So it's a little bit of a split in the room. So if you were born after 1990, um, you probably haven't had to do this. Those of you that were before, you, you probably do understand this. But um, anytime we were going somewhere in a car and there were multiple cars going, we had to follow one another. So um, the reason the 1990-1991 break is there because in 2007 is when the smartphone came out. So you probably turned 16 or 17 around that time if you were born uh, after 1990 or 1991. And you have this device in your pocket that you can just pull out and you plug in an address and it gets you exactly where you need to go, which is great. I'm super thankful for this device on that tip. My wife and I were gone last weekend. We were in Branson, Missouri. We flew into Springfield, Missouri late at night. We got our rental car. We got in. We plugged in the address to our hotel, and we just hit a button, and it took us exactly where we needed to go. And, man, it was pitch black, and it was like turn left on road B. It was just like, I'm so thankful we have this device to guide us to where we need to go. But before the smartphone came out, what would happen is if you were with some friends and you had multiple cars, you'd go, okay, here's where we're going to go. We're going to go to the spot. And one person knew where it was and they would take the lead. You guys remember that if you are older. And all of a sudden, you would kind of be racing in between traffic and you would have to follow really, really close the car in front of you, right? The leader, because if you didn't follow them, you were totally lost, you didn't have directions to this place. You didn't have a phone to pick up and call. Hey, how do I go? And so you had to follow really, really, really closely to be able to get where you were trying to go. I have a brother who's a year and a half older than me. He, uh, he's in the Navy. He's a chief right now. He was involved in Navy SEALs. He's a guy like he walks in, he wears sunglasses inside a room that's lit, you know, that kind of deal, kind of like likes the thrill of things. And uh, this was several years ago before cell phones. My wife and I were out visiting him in San Diego, California on Coronado Island. And he, he is into riding motorcycles, sport bikes. And so uh, I had a license in college and I rode as well. And so he had just upgraded his current motorcycle to like one that was way souped up. So now he had two in the garage. So we show up and he goes, hey, let's go on a ride. I said, cool, let's do it. So we jump on, I jump on the smaller one. He jumps on the big one and we just take off. We're going out of the, the, the Navy base and we're driving. In the back end of Coronado, there's the bridge that goes to Coronado, but then there's this strand. It's this back road. It's just a straight road and you can get going pretty fast. Now, I had to follow my brother in this moment on a motorcycle. So all of a sudden, we go out and we go to the store and he's being pretty tame, but then on the way back, he's just letting it loose. And I'm going, if I don't follow closely to him, 
I'm in a city I don't know. I don't have a phone to call. Like, I'm totally lost. And so all of a sudden, he's weaving, and then I'm weaving. And then we're going through semi-trucks at 100 miles an hour. I would not recommend this to anybody. This is really foolish, right? And, and I'm just caught up going, like, I got to follow him. I got to follow him. And so I'm just, and then all of a sudden, I'm going, okay. I look down at the speedometer. I'm like, this is just stupid. Like, I, I need to pull off the throttle. And luckily, we were kind of pulling into his neighborhood when that happened. But what if... I was driving my motorcycle, trying to do my best to follow my brother, and I kept looking behind me or beside me. I'm worried about somebody else following me or having somebody follow me, and I keep, I keep going like this. Like, that's a recipe for disaster. When you're trying to follow somebody and you're looking over your shoulder to see if somebody else is following you, you're comparing yourself to someone else, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's what we're going to learn here in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible and it's already open, open it up to the very end of the Gospel of John. We are wrapping up the book today, which is crazy. But what we're going to see in this text, this specific text with this last interaction of Jesus and Peter, is that comparison can often be the thing that blocks us from following. Comparison can often be the thing that blocks us from following. If you're taking notes, write this phrase down. This is kind of the main point or the thrust of the text that Jesus wants us to move from a life of comparison to a life of invitation. Move from a life and a way of comparison to a life of invitation. So we are in the very back in the last five verses of the Gospel of John. It's crazy. We started the Gospel of John in August, 19, or August 9th, 2020. So we've been in it for almost two years now. And man, a lot has happened since we started the Gospel of John. We had no lead pastor at the time. We didn't have an interim pastor at the time when we started the Gospel of John. We had just started having conversations uh, about being on this property here where we're sitting right now. And a matter of fact, this was the first sermon that we filmed here on campus was opening up the Gospel of John. And none of us were meeting in person. It was all virtual. A lot has happened through the Gospel of John, as we've been in it 61 weeks, taking breaks for Nehemiah and countercultural convictions and our Advents on, on both ends of the back end of the year. So I've just been so, so thankful for what I feel like God has taught me in the Gospel of John, and I hope you feel the same. Um, we'll be jumping into the book of Colossians. We'll spend May to June in there, just so you kind of have an idea after Easter, which is next week. So that'll be good to look at a new book. So let's look at the text together. John chapter 21, starting at verse 20. We're going to read through it and kind of unpack it and look for our application. It says this, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, is it this man that is going to betray you? Let's stop there just for a minute just to give reference and context for what we're jumping into if you're new with us this morning. Um, Jesus has just restored Peter at a fire, and he has basically said, listen, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, then feed my lambs, tend to my sheep. He's recommissioning Peter's work, and he's reminding them that he doesn't have shame or disappointment in Peter. But then that point that Josh Prather laid out so well last week is that this, this idea of love comes with it this obedience. 
right? Love languages that we have with people, right? I don't know if you've heard the, the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. He just talks about that we give and receive love in certain ways. And so it might be gifts. You really feel loved if somebody gives you a gift or maybe it's quality time or acts of service. Jesus's love language is obedience, it's obedience. It's what he says. Like, if you love me, you'll obey. And not because he wants you to obey because, like, you're a robot, but because he knows if you obey, that's going to be the best place for you. So if you love Jesus, you'll obey. And that's what he's telling Peter, the scene right before this. And he says, you're going to obey so much that you are actually going to die. He tells Peter this. This is the scene we see right after those words, verse 20, where he seems like they stand up and maybe they start walking because all of a sudden, John, who's the author of the book, who refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved, begins to follow them. So Peter kind of looks over his shoulder and sees that John is kind of trailing behind, maybe trying to listen into their conversation. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that, I, that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not going to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die. But if it is my will until, he, until I come, what is that to you? And so John in verse 23 is really kind of dispelling this myth in the early church at this time because some people were going like, man, we want Jesus to come back like right now. And so this interaction, they're going, is that what Jesus was meaning? Like, he's saying that he's going to come back before John dies? Or is John just going to live like this super old life? And John is going like, that's not what Jesus said. He was correcting Peter in this moment. So he's kind of dispelling that in verse 23 for the early church. Then he says in 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things that we know that his testimony is true. John is saying, like, this is true. I saw Jesus. I was with him. It's reliable. And then verse 25, as he closes out the book, now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that were written. It's kind of the second closing. You kind of see at the end of John 20, he kind of closes the book like, this is the reason I'm writing this book to you, that you would believe, that you would have life in the Son. And then this is kind of that second closing of the gospel. So what is John doing here? This is important for us to realize. Um, if we look back and we trace back uh, John 20 and 21, because what we see is the death of Jesus in chapter 19, and then the first scene of Jesus resurrecting is chapter 20, and then we get 21. Why does John give us chapters 21 and 20, and what is he trying to do during this time? I think this is helpful for us to realize. Let's just unwind because we basically have five scenes that we get to see in the resurrected Jesus. What is John trying to tell us in this moment? Again, the Gospel of John was written much later than the other three Gospels. John gives different details. He kind of gets us behind the curtain a little bit more to go, you need to know this. You know this already about Jesus in these first three Gospels and his death and his resurrection, but you need to know these parts of the resurrection as well. And so we need to be clued in and paying attention to the details that John gives us in these five interactions. The first interaction we see in John 20 is where Mary shows up on the scene to the grave. You remember this? She is sad 
And she's confused. She doesn't know. She, she doesn't understand that Jesus is risen. She just thinks somebody stole his body. And she's saying, where did they put him? Would you tell me? And she turns around. And she sees this guy that she thinks is the gardener. And it's actually Jesus. And she doesn't even know it because she's so sad. She's so distraught. She's so confused in her emotion. And Jesus says, Mary. And all of a sudden, he calls her name. And she realizes it's Jesus. You remember the scene? And she clings on to him. And she says, Rabbi, not just teacher, but my teacher, my instructor, you're here. And she's clinging on to him, going, I'm not going to let you go again. Last time I let you go, they killed you. And what does he say to her? He says, Mary, you need to let go. You need to go tell the disciples what's going on. So he takes her in her sadness, in her confusion, and she's looking at her circumstances, only focused on her circumstances, and he says, Mary, look up here to me. Isn't that true in our lives? That when we're only looking at our circumstances, what we have that's sad or confusing or we're disoriented, Jesus turns our gaze to him and says, look right here. I'm right here. Look at me. Remember this. But then he doesn't say just stay there. He says, actually, I have a mission for you. You need to go out. Don't stay here in your holy huddle. You are to be on mission. So we see Mary in that interaction. The second scene that we see right off the heels of that is the disciples. They're afraid and they're hiding. You remember they've locked themselves, the text says they've locked themselves behind the doors for fear of the Jews. They're going like, well, we don't know if he's risen. Mary says he is. I'm not sure if we believe her. I don't know about that. But his body is definitely gone. The Jews might be coming to look for us. And so we're going to put up a barrier of protection. We're going to lock ourselves behind a door. And they're fearful. And what does Jesus do in this moment? He walks through the wall? I don't know. It just says he's in the room all of a sudden, even though the doors are locked. I don't know if he knows how to pick a lock. I'm not sure how it works, but he walks through in their presence. He goes through their own barriers of self-protection. And don't we have barriers of self-protection when we have fear? When we're scared. We put up these walls, and you know, Jesus in his love and his grace comes through those barriers to be with us. And remember what he says to them. He says, peace be with you. He gives them joy. And then he sends his spirit on them to go out and be on mission. You remember, he blows on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit and then go out and do likewise. That's the second scene. The third scene, we see Thomas. And Thomas is angry and he's doubting. Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus shows up for some reason. He, I don't know what he was doing. He was out getting groceries. He was gone. He wasn't in the actual room when Jesus shows up. And he comes back and they're telling him, Jesus was here. He's alive. It's true. And Thomas, what does he say? Kind of in his anger, he's kind of going like, no, 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 no. We don't know if he's just angry that he missed it, but he's going, unless I see him, unless I put my finger in his wounds and in his side, I will never believe. I'm not doing this anymore. I don't believe you. And he's doubting in the midst of that. And eight days later, it says, what happens? Jesus shows up to Thomas in his doubt. And Anthony did such a wonderful job, I think, when he preached just that, like, there's room for doubt. Even in the church, we need to give room for doubt for people and point them back to Jesus. Jesus shows up again behind locked doors. Jesus comes in. He gives them peace again. And he says, Thomas. Touch my hands. Put your finger in my side, Thomas. This is real. He gives us physical evidence and says, this is real. Don't doubt anymore, but believe. And the 
the fourth scene we see, we talked about last week. Peter isn't in the room in either of those places, it seems, either. But he is gone and back to fishing. He's going, well, like I blew it. I denied Jesus when I said I wouldn't. He's dead. He's not really the Messiah. I'm going to go back to doing what I normally do. And he goes out and he fishes. And then again, Jesus comes to him. In all of these scenarios, Jesus is coming to the people. The people aren't looking for Jesus. Jesus is going to them. Jesus goes to Peter. And you remember the scene. Peter is on the boat. Tells him to put his nets on the other side. They catch this huge fish. They realize it's Jesus. Peter just jumps in the water and goes to Jesus. Jesus has a fire set up kind of to restore this trigger for Peter. Because last time he was around a charcoal fire, what happened? He denied Jesus three times. He has this interaction, this kindness, this love as he moves towards Peter. And he undoes his shame. He undoes his disappointment. He says, Peter, I love you. Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And then he tells them to move forward in obedience even to the point of death. And then what do we see here in this interaction? That Peter starts to compare. He's comparing himself to John in this moment. And Jesus rebukes this comparison and tells him, listen, Peter, you follow me. Don't worry about that. Don't look over your shoulder. Don't look to your side. You follow me. What is John doing in this moment with these five interactions, and why does he give them to us in this way? I think this is important for us to realize. Look at those interactions. There's sadness, there's confusion, there's fear and hiding, there's anger and doubting, there's shame and disappointment, and then there's comparison. I love the interaction of Jesus in the resurrection. Because what I think John is doing in this moment, what he does throughout his whole book, you remember how the book starts? John chapter 1, verse 1, what does he say? In the beginning was the Word. You remember how Genesis starts? Very first pages of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1, what does it say? In the beginning. God is doing something in John's writing where he's specifically connecting the Old Testament to Jesus, to the beginnings of what's going on to Jesus. And I think he's doing it in these last two chapters to Genesis 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, God creates everything in Genesis 1 and 2, and it's good, and it's right, and it's beautiful. But in the midst of creating those things, he gives man and woman the choice to choose to love him or not love him because of this tree he puts in the garden. And then Genesis 3 happens, and it unwinds everything. What I think John is doing here as Josh mentioned last week where he quoted Leslie Newbegin. He says that, Leslie Newbegin said that Jesus and the resurrection is the great hinge in all of human history. That all of human history was going this direction. And when Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, and dies on the cross, and then beats death, there's a hinge, there's a change. Everything was going this way, and now everything can go this way. And it really is true because before this happens, we only have an incomplete answer for our sadness and our confusion. We only have an incomplete answer for our fear and our anxiety. We only have an incomplete answer for our doubt and our anger. We only have an incomplete answer for our shame and our disappointment. But with Jesus raising from the dead, we can have a full answer to those things. And some of us in the room, we've accepted Jesus, we've given our life to him, but we're still living in this category. We don't realize that we can have answers for our shame and our disappointment. Why? Because we're comparing. And Jesus rebukes Peter for that. He says, that's not the way. Let's look at Genesis 3, 
even in how the resurrection reverses what happens? Do we see in Genesis 3, if you're familiar with the story, we'll look at that in a minute, but do you see that there's confusion? Do you see that there's um, hiding and there's fear in Genesis 3 after sin enters the equation? Do you remember that? Do you know that there's shame and there's disappointment? Uh, Adam and Eve try to cover themselves up the best they know how because they feel shame for the first time, and Jesus is undoing all of it in the resurrection. Let's talk about this last one specific to comparing because that's where we are in the text this morning and Jesus is kind of saying, no, 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 Peter, don't compare to John. You follow me. Don't live in that, that cycle of comparison. Comparing yourself to others often allows the people you're comparing yourself to drive your behavior. Have you noticed that? When you start to look to the left or to the right, whether you do it on purpose or you do it subconsciously, that person that you're looking at starts to drive your behavior. Again, it's like anytime you've um, driven just looking in the rearview mirror behind you, it's not helpful. It's driving how you're going instead of looking out of the windshield. Social psychologists say that humans have no choice but to compare. That's what they say. They say we do it in intuitively. Um, we cannot control it. We are wired to rank and compare when we walk into a room. And I think that's true because I think we all have a sinful nature in us to compare and contrast who are around. The comparison definition by social psychologists is this. It's the crush of conformity from one side, the crush of conformity from one side, and competition from the other. Trying to simultaneously fit in but stand out. To try and simultaneously fit in, but actually stand out. That's what you're doing when you're comparing. And so comparing is not just about like if I have um, five-year-old kids and I'm not comparing to like every average five-year-old kid that my kids' behavior is good for all five-year-old kids. No, I care about the kids that are in the restaurant three booths over. Are my kids better behaved than those kids? And that's what you do in this comparison mentality. It's not something average. It's like, who's near me in proximity? Am I better than them? And then I feel good about myself. And we all play that game at some level. And this is what Peter is doing with John. This is what Jesus rebukes him for. And sometimes comparison can be motivated. Like, like maybe, oh, wow, they're really good. Elizabeth is really good, so I want to be like her. Maybe it can be motivated, but a lot of time it's destructive. And it's not helpful because you start going like, listen, if I'm single in the room right now, if you're single and you're looking around and you're going, well, they're married and they're married and they're married, like, why am I not married? You know? The Andersons just get up in the middle of the service. They're really upset about something I said. They've got... <laughs> They're getting baptism interviews for, for their kids, so that's where they're going. Um, but isn't that true? Like, if you're single in the room, you're going, well, why am I not married? You start comparing yourself to the people to your left and to your right, and all your friends are getting married, and you're going, well, what's wrong with me? This doesn't seem right. Or maybe you're married, and you're going like, man, they have kids, and they have kids. Why don't we have kids? I really want kids. You're looking to the left and to the right, and you're going, this doesn't seem fair. Or maybe you're going like, I know this person has this job. I've applied seven times for this one, and I keep getting denied, and I'm not getting this job. Why don't I have this job? But you're looking to the left or to the right. You know, it's often quoted. I don't know if 
He's the one that said it. Teddy Roosevelt's often the one that's quoted that comparison is the thief of joy. That he said that. Comparison is the thief of joy. It steals your joy when you start looking to the left and to the right and comparing if you're as good as the next person. Comparison causes envy, jealousy, and resentment. If you live in that cycle of comparison. So where do we see comparison first show up in the Bible? This is always an interesting question. If you think about the story and the full scope of the Bible and that God has all the answers right here for us, when's the first time we see comparison showing up in the scriptures? I think it's in Genesis 3. Let's look at it together. Just for some context, this is starting in verse 1 of Genesis 3. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall eat of any fruit or any tree in the garden? So let's stop there for a second. This is, this is the enemy at work in this moment. And the first thing that the enemy does, the first tactic of the enemy is to make you question, did God say that? Isn't that true even today when people look at the Bible and they go, this is our, like, does God really say this? Does God really say I have to do this? Because this seems a little old-fashioned. This seems a little out of touch. They're not really. That's the enemy going like, did God say this? So he's getting you to question all of a sudden. He's getting Eve to question the reliability of what God says is true. This is how Eve responds in verse 3. Or verse 2, I'm sorry. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now this is interesting, neither shall you touch it. Um, Eve seems to add, at least to our text, we don't know, she seems to add this part. She's adding to what God has already said. Because in the earlier version, we don't see that God says, don't, no, 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 don't touch it, just don't eat it. So she's adding to it, unless you die. Look at what the enemy replies at in verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, Surely you'll not die. For if God knows that what you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I believe this is the first time we see comparison in the Bible. This is what the enemy is doing. He's saying, Eve, listen, you could be like God. You're comparing yourself right now to, to God, and you can actually be like him. You can get on his level. Don't you want that? It's a tactic that the enemy is using to live a life of comparison. And under the surface, below the waterline, the root of comparison is always pride. It's pride. I deserve that. I should get that too, shouldn't I? And the enemy wants to use that as, as your default option of a life of comparison as you live your life. And he wanted Peter to live that way too. And Jesus rebukes it in the moment. And social media is often a highlight reel of someone else's life, right? They only show the best things on your social media, like your vacation and really good food. Nobody posts like they're at McDonald's on social media. They just don't do that, right? They post their highlights, and all you're seeing is everybody else's highlights all the time. And that can be a very just dangerous trap, comparison trap, tempting us to question aspects of our own life. Like, man, I don't eat like that. 
I don't look like that. I don't talk like that. I don't hang out with those people. And then you start to get in this vicious cycle of going, what's wrong with me? We also see the next story, Genesis 4, also has comparison in it. You remember that one, Cain and Abel? Cain starts comparing his offering to God's, and he ends up killing his brother over it. So what's the antidote? Like, if this is kind of our default, and we all kind of identify with it at some level, like, how does Jesus rising from the dead and beating death change us? Like, what is the antidote to comparison? Because the world will tell you, like, you can't help it. There's nothing you can do about it. Here's, here's the antidote from the world's perspective. Just recognize it. Recognize it and name it. So then you can kind of have power over it. Or they will say, like, listen, um, just, just take a break from social media. That's how you can kind of uh, combat this comparison. Um, have a gratitude journal. Be grateful for certain things. Now, I think all of those things are good. I think taking breaks is really good. I think gratitude is at the heart of the gospel. I think those things are good. But those are incomplete answers to this problem. This comparison mentality and lifestyle needs a total change. And what is Jesus' antidote to the comparison is invitation. This is what he says to Peter. He says, Peter, don't, don't, look at the, don't look at John. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow me. That's the antidote to comparison is invitation. What does it mean to move into this life of invitation that Jesus says, follow me, that he extends his invitation to you? How do we grab hold of that instead of looking to our right and to our left? Luke Johnson's book, Living Jesus, opens with this sentence. He says, it makes a big difference whether you think somebody is dead or alive. That's what he opens with his book. It makes a big difference if you think somebody's dead or alive. Now, if you're a Christian in this room, we're going to celebrate the resurrection next week. And we're all going to go, yes, Jesus is alive. I, I commit to that. I subscribe to that. I do. But then why do we talk about Jesus like he's dead? Because don't we? I really feel like a lot of the times we do. He goes on to explain, Luke Johnson in his book, he says uh, that if someone's dead, we don't expect to have an actual interaction with them. Our relationship with them is based on who they were and what they've left behind. It's all past tense. However, if they're alive, then we'd expect a current present tense relationship. He goes on to say the most important question concerning Jesus for Christians then is simply this. Do we think he's dead or alive? In his book, Discipled by Jesus, there's a pastor named Robert Gelinas out of Denver, and the book is so, so good. Uh, but in it, he says this. Follow me. The call to the 12, the call to the crowds, also Jesus' call on our lives. But what does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Especially for us, two millennia removed from Christ's time on earth. The standard answer goes something like this. Once you give your life to Christ and are in relationship with him, the goal is to understand what he did and then imitate his way of life as closely as you can. So to follow Jesus means that you read your Bible with special attention to the Gospels and you take note of Jesus' life and teachings. And then you do what he said. This is a good start, but there's so much more. Yes, it's imperative that we know what Jesus said, 
But if we're going to be discipled by Jesus, we need to transition our language into the present tense. When we have reduced following Jesus to doing what he did, we have slipped back into the past tense view of discipleship. Spiritual growth happens as we recognize that we can still follow Jesus the way the first century disciples did. Following Jesus isn't just doing what he said, it's doing what he is saying. Jesus is still alive. Jesus is still speaking, and he's still calling you by name. Listen. The answer to this comparison trap that we all fall into because of our flesh and because of our sinful nature, and we start looking to the left and we look to the right, instead of going like, oh, I'm better than that, oh, I'm worse than this, it's going, okay, Jesus says come. Follow me. Don't get caught up in all that. Just come and follow me. And just like he said that to Peter, just like he said that to Mary, just like he said it to Thomas, he's saying it to you today. Listen to his voice. Answer the invitation to follow him today. Whether this is your first time and you're, you're exploring Christianity, you haven't really made the decision to follow him, and he's calling you to say, come and follow me. This is where you find life. Everything else you will find death in. It's a cheap substitute for life. Come and follow me. And you say yes for the first time. Or maybe this is your thousandth time saying yes. And the invitation is the same. Just like to Peter, he said this to Peter time and time again. He says it to his disciples. He says it to us when we sin and we mess up and we start comparing. He says, stop that. Come follow me. This is the invitation. To come and follow Jesus every single day, every single moment. And then we screw up and we mess up. And you know what Jesus says? Come follow me. Your shame is undone. Your disappointment is undone. Your past is undone. Your fear, your anxiety, it's undone because what I've done on the cross, come and follow me and have life. Why don't we do it? Why don't we follow him? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to ask it generally. Like, why don't we do it? And the more we accept that invitation to come and follow him, to be near him, the more he changes us, the more we start looking like him. And sometimes we don't accept that invitation and that offering because we go, well, I don't know what that would look like. That seems a little too extreme. Like, I don't want to be known as one of those Jesus people. Like, I know those people. And, I... and you're comparing again. Instead of just following the invitation to come and follow me from Jesus. We be people even as you walk out of this room, even the rest of your day, there's going to be opportunities where he says, come, come and follow me right now. That's not the way to live. Come back and follow me. Would we be people that follow Jesus? We would let go of the comparison trap. And when we start to realize it, we go, no, 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 no. I don't live a life of comparison. I live a life of invitation. Let's pray. Father, we so need you. And we need your spirit to enable us to do this. Jesus, thanks for these interactions in this last couple of weeks as we look at the last two chapters of John. And we see, Father, that you're a God that undoes fear and anxiety and shame and disappointment and doubting because of what you've done on the cross. 
We have access now that we did not have before to you and to life. And you give us that access based on an invitation. Would you give us the ears to hear it? Would you give us the hearts to receive it? We have stubborn hearts. But Jesus, you can melt it with your love and your kindness as you look at us and you put your hand out and you say, come and follow me. We pray that it would be true this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen.